Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. When Barack Obama was elected in 2008, there was talk about a post-racial America. Well, 13 years later, Republicans in Texas, Florida, and six other states have enacted laws that restrict the access of African-Americans, Latinos, and the poor to voting. Progress made since the 1970s appears to be endangered. What's happened to social what has happened to social reform in the United States. Nearly 50 years ago, in 1974, Robert Allen and Jude Pam Allen examined American reform movements and how they had been undermined by racism in a book called Reluctant Reformers, Racism and Social Reform Movements in the United States. It's been reissued by OR Books with a new introduction by Jamel Bowie. Writer, editor, and activist Stephen Hyatt worked closely with Robert and Chude to prepare this new edition, and I'm very pleased that Stephen Hyatt and Chude Pam Allen are joining me now to discuss the book and the ongoing problems of racism in American social movements. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, Chude, uh, can I ask you just uh, before we begin why Robert is unable to join us? Yes, Robert um, had a stroke uh, about over a little over a year ago and is unable to um, feel comfortable in something like this. But so you felt it was important to reissue reluctant reformers now. Are racist ideas and practices hindering social movements now as they did in the past? Well, (laughs) one could say, of course. (laughs) I mean, it's obvious. I, I think one of the values of Reluctant Reformer, even uh, 50 years later, is that partly it traces how the ideology of racism changes as the social conditions change, as the political economy has developed. So that what we see today is not the same way that uh, necessarily that, that racism manifested uh, in the past, although certainly there are similarities and connections. And of course, that's uh, what this conversation is going to be all about. Uh, it's always complicated when I have two guests. So I'm going to throw out some, I'll, I'll ask you individually questions, but sometimes I'll just throw out questions to both of you and hope that you can <laughs> work it out yourself. So yes. uh, Stephen and, and Jude, prominent public figures like Tucker Carlson uh, and a growing number of elected Republicans are promoting what's known as white replacement theory. Is it becoming more acceptable to express racist views openly in the United States now? You can answer that if you want. I'll take a stab at that. I think it is. Uh, I think it's um, a sentiment of basically white nationalism being floated now more explicitly as uh, racism becomes more under attack, both racist ideology and racial, racial, social, racist social, social structures. Um, so that to circle the wagons and to keep white people, and particularly white working class people in line, um, some argument has to be developed very explicitly to rally around a figure like Donald Trump, other figures in the Republican Party, um, to keep them voting um, what would be logically against their interests. Would you, um, would you say that a, replacement theory reflects an attitude of supremacism that's pervaded the thinking of white Americans for centuries and affected social reform as a result? Well, I think if we trace back 
the whole question of the development with, for example, in the 1619 project and other historical works that are being discussed today. Um, it's always an intention of many of um, uh, the European settlers in America, the colonial settler population, to develop a country that was based on an ethnic group that was white and it was Northwest European Protestant. And gradually there were struggles to include more and more people, Catholic immigrants in various ways, um, massive struggles over Irish immigration, where they'd be accepted as white and so on. But um, never the indigenous yes. people who they, they met here. Never them. No, they were to be displaced because their removal um, would make room for this new consolidated nation. And while black people were finally, after the Civil War, granted formal citizenship with the 14th Amendment, that was formal. And the idea, who was really the nation? It was this group of white colonial settler population, um, again, centered on white Northwest European Protestants, but now expanded to include others. Um, and the fight has been then, how can everybody who lives in the United States be included in the society as an equal person, not just juridically and very much formally, but in a practical day-to-day -day social manner? And that's what the resistance is about, of keeping people in their place structurally, keeping them down so that those who have a lot can maintain their power, their wealth, their self-image, um, and developing a rhetoric of you're under threat mm. as just an ordinary white working class person going to work in a factory or a store each day um, helps achieve that goal, unfortunately. And, and people, yes, go ahead. Uh, the United States was still engaged in the Vietnam War when this book was originally published in 1974. Richard Nixon resigned in August of that year. And for many Americans, it was the age of activism and reform. Do you think we need a comparable uh, sense of reform today? Well, to some degree, of course, we do have aspects of it in um in the last year, two years, Black Lives Matter, of course, um, was very profound in its uh, what it, it raised, the issues they, the young people raised, black leadership. These are important questions. Except, um, can I interrupt for just a second? Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me many of the movements that we will be discussing uh, for racial equity were actually uh, driven by African-Americans. Uh, the NAACP earlier, for example, uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, so much of what we'll be discussing, uh, many of the social reform movements kind of excluded blacks over the years. Uh, are we seeing something similar today? Well, I'm not sure we're seeing that today, but I wanted to go back to your first question, because I think that one of the things the book does is it shows that during the era when when uh, people 
of African descent were enslaved, uh, the rationalization for slavery became more viciously racist as the institution was being attacked, as more and more white people in the North in particular were beginning to question um, both the morality as well as the efficacy of, of slavery. So then it became the question was, are people of color, and in particular black people, uh, human beings? Mm. And part of the justification of slavery was that they're not really human beings. So that was that after um, the Civil War and the ending of uh, slavery, that was no longer the the way to um, to justify the continued subjugation of black people. Uh, to be to still uh, say they didn't deserve the same opportunities and rights. And the uh, arguments began to be more about the inferiority mm-hmm. that somehow the white race, the white Europeans were um, biologically superior and had the right to by now, of course, it was to rule the world, not just in the United States. Uh, so it became more the question of uh, equality. Now, that was always a question from the beginning in the abolition movement. It's one of the things that I love so much about this book is the abolition chapter and how it shows the contradictions among white people. That from the beginning, there were whites who were opposed to enslaving people, but had no interest in making sure that the enslaved, when they were no longer under slavery, would have land or would have ways to actually support themselves and did not necessarily believe that they were equal. By the turn of the 19th century, um, that became for the different reformers one of the questions still what were, were people of color and particular, in particular African Americans, were they capable of the same things as whites or was, uh, or were they to be always a a bottom level industrial workforce to be used when needed and to be made unemployed when they're not needed uh, because they were an inferior group of people. Now this past- and there you have someone like W.B. Du Bois coming in as a black intellectual leader, arguing that at least there was within the black community, within um, the African-American people, at least a talented tenth, people who were capable of being leaders and um, were uh, intellectually the equals of whites. That became one of the arguments. But as the book points out, that Du Bois's leadership did not have a base in amongst uh, regular black people, what we might call the masses. Uh, they were much more drawn to uh, Marcus Garvey. And it's because he was in many ways an elitist. And he joined with, therefore, the NAACP. And one of the points made in Reluctant Reformers is that there was white money behind the NAACP, Mm -hmm. which means white controlled. And so this then we see at the turn of the century with the progressives, which reminds me most of today, in a way, the the whole social welfare, uh, we we good-hearted, um, intelligent white people will take care of everyone else. Um, you can trust us even to vote. You know, to to pres- we'll we'll downplay racism, but you can vote for us, and we'll still take care of everybody. That was one of the forms of racism that at the turn of the century that I think still is very prevalent among some whites. Uh, but then as as we move into the through the 20th century, uh, the book then takes the position that we move to 
something which Robert coined as cultural um, chauvinism, which is that somehow it's European culture that somehow made it possible for Europeans to essentially, you know, dominate most of the world for much of the 19th and some of the 20th century. And that, that people of color can be integrated into, uh, into our society, even into positions of relative and power, like, uh, Colin Powell, Powell, who just passed away. Um, if they have, they exhibit a commitment to the values, the culture, and the political economy of what has been a white supremacist society. So we can then bring people in. So the issue today, as I see it, uh, and this is something that, that I, you know, I, I'm not the only one that sees it this way, obviously, is that there is this big split between the college educated and the non-college ed- educated. And that manifests partly in terms of um, some very vicious, rampant racism on the part of some uncollege un- educated white males. But it's still a division. And and one of the values of the 60s, and especially the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, when when the Southern Freedom Movement um, burst upon the scene, was that SNCC was very clear that the poor were to be respected and to be valued and to be part of any change that was going to be made. That it was not just about the educated or the higher income people that had a right to become, become integrated into our culture and society with full equality and with full justice, but that everybody Well, Stephen, the book covers six major reform movements, abolitionism, southern populism, progressivism, voting rights for women, organized labor, and socialist movements. Uh, Obviously, we can't cover all of that in the limited time we have, uh, and we will uh, spend a little more time on uh, abolitionism. Uh, But I want to remind my listeners that my guests are Chewed, Pam Allen, and Stephen Hyatt, uh, the book we're discussing is uh, an updated version of Reluctant Reformers, Racism and Social Reform Movements in the United States, published by OR Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, Stephen, David Walker, a free black man, summarized the thinking of whites who supported slavery when he wrote that whites were of, quote, the firm conviction that heaven has designed blacks to be slaves and beasts of burden for the, to them. Did white abolitionists even share supremacist views to some degree? Um, I think that's a complicated question because there are different streams of abolitionism, as, as Jude mm-hmm. briefly alluded to. Um that chapter had a lot of resonance for me because uh, I'm older, um, long generations of my family. So three of my four great-grandparents were abolitionists and were connected with the Underground Railroad. Um, this was in southern Iowa. And at the time, this was a risky thing to do. There were gangs of slavers coming up from Missouri, chasing the free enslaved people on the run. Um, there were fines, prison terms for doing this. Um, and so it wasn't just pressing a like on a Facebook mount, uh, a feed. Uh, this was considerable risk. Um, at the same time, um, you know, people laid out their lives. They volunteered 
en masse pour la Union Armée, et certains d'entre eux ont mouru. Mais vous voyez, après la Civil War, une um, fois que le 14th Amendment est adopté, quelques autres dans la constitution constitution, similar choses en Iowa, um, a drifting away from that commitment because people did not realize that they had to go further than simply formal equality um, laid out in the constitution. But there had to be, uh, as you mentioned, a way to bring the formally enslaved people into some kind of uh, uh, situation where they could Uh, fend for themselves, basically, uh, without being on the very bottoms, uh, very bottom of uh, society, uh, without being, as it became in the South, a subordinated labor pool on uh, planta former plantations and sharecroppers, uh, uh, basically in, in, cornered and hemmed in by uh, Jim Crow segregation. Uh, they didn't realize that they had to go further to make sure that that equality had some real social, structural, economic basis, uh, without which the formal equality slipped away further and further. And there were segregationist practices in my home state, which was a Northern Union state. Um, in practice, even though they were not formally legal, but continued. Um, yes. One of my mentors, uh, Edna Griffin in Des Moines, who was head of the uh, Four chapter there, um, in 1947, organized a lunch counter sit-in in downtown Des Moines at a drugstore that would not serve black people. And this was illegal in Iowa and had been uh, ruled by the state Supreme Court since the 19th century, but nobody had been able to move those people off the, uh, uh, the drugstore owners. The uh, city wouldn't move, uh, the state wouldn't intervene, there were lawsuits which failed. And so there were social practices which very much resembled those in the South um, throughout the country. Uh, so well, we saw it in our schools right here in New York City. We, we saw some de facto segregation, if not real segregation. Well, the whole series of uh, uh, practices, the redlining of the banks and the, mm -hmm. the real estate industry has been under discussion for a long time. And continues in various ways, even though that's been formally, again, outlawed. But to change actual practice involves considerable uh, agitation, pressure, uh, acquisition of uh, power in various ways to bring actual change as opposed to, to formal change. So to circle back to, to the question about the abolitionists, Many of them did accept that black people were uh, fellow Christians and equal people um, and deserving of help. And they laid out uh, considerable blood and treasure to do so. But they did not, again, realize firmly what they needed to do. Um, somebody like uh, Thaddeus Stevens Uh, tried to get Congress to provide 40 acres and a mule to give newly free people an economic basis from which to uh, uh, expand their freedom. Uh, and that, that failed, and it was because much of the Republican leadership was anti-slavery, 
but uh, once slavery, formal slavery had ended, had no interest mm. in doing anything further. And in fact, rather like the idea of a subordinated uh, labor force in the South continuing to produce cotton, sugar, other goods uh, for the industrial economy, just as long as they weren't slaves. It didn't mean you had to pay them much. didn't mean that they really were um, free uh, free workers in that sense, but they just weren't formally chattel slaves, which was in that sense an advance, but it wasn't enough of an advance. Um, and so the, the movement split. The people who were anti-slavery, the abolitionists, failed to achieve as much as they could. And those who were simply anti-slavery and pro-union basically won the day well, and did kind of the minimum. Um, and then as Reconstruction disintegrated, um, basically launched a national united front uh, idea of bringing the South back in and reuniting the North and South in a national expansionist um, program and liquidating uh, differences between uh, the North and the South. And uh, there's a famous uh, story about the reunion at Gettysburg of very aged uh, Union and Confederate veterans, and the Confederate veterans stumble and uh, move forward to what had been the Union lines, and instead of firing, of course, war is long over, they embrace each other in a national symbol of reconciliation between North and South, and you can say that they uh, achieved that reconciliation, at the same time, they buried their knives instead in, in the backs of, of Black people. Well, I want to uh, I want to go back a bit. Didn't some white abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison initially support expatriation and colonization, sending African Americans back to Africa or or to Africa? Obviously, not all of them back. Uh, the 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 way that Liberia was created, in effect, uh, w- did that represent a kind of alliance between white abolitionists and slave owners? Uh, yes, to some degree, and I think the important thing in the book that we that we show is that it was the black abolitionists who began to um, educate people like William Lloyd Garrison and other uh, abolitionists who began to essentially radicalize them. People like David is, Walker, who advocated uh, a more militant approach. Yeah, and well, and just that 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 sending people back to Africa was not going to be the answer for the problems of ending slavery. That slavery needed to be ended as an institution, and of course, the black abolitionists were concerned about what would then happen. Uh, how would black uh, people be integrated into the economy as free labor? Uh, and one of their criticisms of some abolitionist societies is that the abolitionist societies didn't even hire uh, black workers in their offices. Now, that's one side. But as um, Steve said, it was a very varied group. So one of the um, things that I love so much about re- learning about the abolition movement is that uh, people like Lucretia Mott, who, who was in Philadelphia and a Quaker, uh, and an abolitionist that the women believe that they practice social equality, which was one of the key issues are, are if everyone is equal, can, you know, we relate together as equals. And they did. They embraced black women. And some of the very virulent uh, white racists burned their their headquarters down. 
because that they, they were so against that. Uh, so within the, the abolitionist movement, you had this wide range. And what's interesting is that I was raised knowing that I came, that I had a great grandmother who was a Mott, that I came out of abolitionist Quakers. And I actually have um, a copy of the, uh, one of the photographs that Sojourner Truth used to sell during when she would go um, speaking as a way to support herself, as well as uh, photographs of Lucretia Mott. So it is interesting that the two of us that are here today, both of us have within our own families a connection to um, to abolition. Well, Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth were among the abolitionists, and I'm assuming yes. that uh, black women had added faced added obstacles to other women who were just seeking some kind of equality. Well, I think in terms of so at were least black the women study, seen as we... inferior to whites and to black men. I'm sorry, say that question again. Were black women seen as inferior to whites and to black men? Well, I think it depends again who you're talking about. This is an era in um in our country where patriarchy was very strong and women as a whole were seen as sometimes structurally property of either their fathers or their husbands and could not, once they married, um, own control their own property that they may have brought into to a marriage. That was one of the many um, pushes for women's rights was to begin to push towards um, equality. But yes, African-American women, both enslaved and free, suffered um, that double dis- discrimination, and they suffered the particular problems that women face when they are um, oppressed, which is sexual abuse. Women did win the right to vote with the 18th, 19th Amendment, which was ratified in August 1920. Had there been disagreement over whose concerns took priority, blacks or women? Well, right after the Civil War, when the question came up of what was going to happen in terms of Southern representation in Congress, the issue was that during slavery, enslaved people were considered three-fifths of a citizen citizen for counting how many representatives you would get in Congress. With the ending of slavery, they now were going to be counted as one person. What were the Republicans going to do if they didn't do anything? Actually, the, the South, dominated by whites, would in fact control <clears throat> excuse me, the House of Representatives. So the 13th Amendment was to end slavery, but the 14th Amendment, among other things, established that you could only have as many representatives in Congress counted for represent, being a representative as males were allowed to vote. And that was the crisis for the early women's rights people, is that for the first time, male was going to be put into the Constitution. It was not done because these folks cared a whole lot about black men and didn't care about women. It was done because it was, you know, it was done to ensure that the Republicans would have the majority in in Congress. And so when both with the women's rights... Of course, we're talking about a different Republican Party than we are today. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we have we should Although remember that until opp- until the sixties the Democratic Party was the party of white supremacism in the South anyway. And yes. not in the North. Yes. But in the South, yes, it maintained that 
the, the cold of the white supremacists was the Democratic Party. Uh, but I just wanted to mention that both the women's rights uh, advocates themselves and then the early feminists in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, they would refer to the 14th and 15th Amendments as the betrayal of women. Hmm. And I would suggest that that always was not um, politically an accurate reflection. It's a moral reflection because the women felt quite correctly that we have as much right to be equal as everybody else. But as a political thing, those amendments had nothing to do with white men thinking black men should are equal. It had to do with the question of making sure that they they would be counted as as they would be allowed to vote if they would be counted. And then with the end of Reconstruction, then then they didn't care what happened, and so black men were disfranchised in the South. Well, what role did black leaders like Frederick Douglass have to alter, uh, have in, in altering the course of white thinking? He'd worked for a time with Garrison, but later he started his own abolitionist newspaper, The North Star. Uh, so there were splits among black abolitionists as well? Well, I think with Douglass, the question is more his understanding that while working with whites, it was essential that black reformers have their own vehicles of communication. That is a theme through the whole book, and it is true today. People have to have a way of communicating what they're thinking that does not have to go through an editorial process of white folk. I mean, that's what it was. So Garrison, it was one of his little um, blind spots as he was telling Douglas, you can't both be an orator, be out there doing all the speaking and, you know, be an editor of a newspaper. That's too much work for one person, even though he himself was doing it. And it really was a question of, um, you know, giving of a vehicle for black uh, reformers to speak their mind what they believed. And it, you know, in looking through the history that we do, one of the things we can see is even in periods when there they black uh reformers had little power, they still had the if they kept those independent presses, we would call it then they were presses. They were not um like we have now. They didn't have television and social media and all that stuff. Uh but they could speak and they could and through their papers and magazines, they could communicate the, their ideas. And that, that that sense of of independence, which brings us all the way up through the 60s with Black Power, the importance of Black leadership having its own vehicles of communication are key to ending racism in, in our society and in the world. It doesn't mean, as we say in the book, it doesn't mean that they were always right. And the white reformers were always wrong. It's not that's not true. We'll we'll go into that in more detail in just a moment. We have to take a little break. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Black race founded on blatant denial. Sweet economics, subsistence survival, deafening silence and social control. Black rage is found in all wounds in the soul. When the dogs 
Stephen Hyatt, we're talking about reluctant reformers, racism, and social reform movements in the United States, just released in an updated version by OR Books. Um, Women are still fighting for their rights, African Americans and other people of color as well, and workers. And you write, quote, no other reform movement has had such a lasting impact on non-white Americans as the labor movement. Is that still true 50 years after the first edition of the book? Well, I think the the labor movement has actually depl- declined in um in power and effect there there are fewer uh unionized workers, but I think the point that that has always been made is that workers are always in better shape if they organize together and negotiate uh with employers rather than they try to do it as an individual. And that counters the the main cultural, uh, you know, line in this country that you can make it on your own. And if you can't make it on your own, there's something wrong with you. And, of course, that's a lie, but it keeps people separate. And I've always loved the, the labor ide- union uh, idea that take one stick and you can break it. Put a lot of sticks together, you can't break it. That coming together, unity is essential. And the, it's probably the saddest chapter in the book, in my opinion, is the the reading about how many times white workers went after their own interests and were happy and even wanted to exclude black workers and workers mm-hmm. of color so that they could keep the better jobs so they could um, protect their own interests. It's very sad. And then, of course, the point was that when they went on strike, if they were unionized, then um workers of color could be used to break the break the strike because that was the only way they could get a job. So black women uh, right. couldn't take the votes from white women. Freed slaves couldn't take freedom from whites. But white workers often saw blacks and Latinos, at least in recent decades, as uh, potentially taking their jobs. Well, I think in, in all of this, and Steve, you should answer too here, but as there's been a degradation of um, of the kinds of jobs available to many workers, and especially workers who don't have college educations, I think then there's been this this fear that if you don't protect your own, there'll be nothing, rather than a sense that there that it's possible to create a political economy where everybody has a job. There really is possible, but it's not going to happen if everybody's only fighting for themselves. It requires coming together and working together and insisting that the answer is not on some people uh, fighting for the few jobs, but that there be jobs available for everyone. Uh, Steve, Steve, you should. Steve, have have Republicans and some business leaders, uh, Elon Musk perhaps, sought to foster a sense of people of color as competition? Um, I'm not so sure that it's. Um, competition in a sense of somebody is going to roll in and take your job. It's more of a um, more generalized threat than that, I think. Um, so a lot of it has to do with jobs simply being exported yes. or automated away. So there are fewer jobs and people um, uh, try to hold on to the purchase they have and feel threatened by anything from the outside, any change 
rather than seeing the possibilities for uniting with other people um, to organize uh, to organize a union because most of us when we work we don't have unions in our workplace um, so we negotiate when we negotiate it's individual by individual and we're divided then easily by uh, by the employer uh, to uh, uh, maybe take a crumb here, advantage there, um, and keep these other people away, um, or simply just to claim up over other other folks. Um, there is a long history going back to, we started off talking about the displacement of indigenous Americans in favor of the colonial settler population and its expansion. Um, but there's a long history of people being able to get ahead only at the expense of somebody else, yeah. taking their land, uh, keeping them out, um, having uh, job categories that were available only for some people, um, only white people, or only white people if you knew somebody's, uh, your dad or your uncle or a family friend was a firefighter, and then you could be one, but if not, then not. Um, so a lot of things were were, were based on um, some kind of hierarchical structure that people cling to uh, to survive in an extremely chaotic and uh, uh, unfriendly environment. Um, and so anything that seems to be upsetting that um, as movements of people of color certainly do because they're concentrated in the poor and working class, uh, so any advance by them tends to upset, upset the entire uh, pyramidical structure of the economy and seems threatening unless somehow you can understand that showing practical solidarity with them is in fact the way to achieve that security and that prosperity that you've been trying to get and trying to preserve. And the only way forward is through that, and it's not through looking backward to some uh, kind of post-World War II uh, uh, golden era in which white people were in the, in the, at the top of the job categories and everybody else was left behind. In the 1960s and at other times, local and federal law enforcement infiltrated activist groups, sometimes Stoke Division, did those opposed to abolition or women's equality try to exacerbate tensions over race? Yes. You yes, know, in you fact, in, that William in the, Lloyd Garrison was able to recognize how he had appealed to racist feelings. Yes, I think that that within many times, white reformers, many of them began to understand that there were ways in which uh, they could. Or, or could not appeal to um, to the racism in whites to to win whatever it was they were promoting. Um, certainly, in the women's suffrage movement, that was a serious issue. It was serious around the debates around the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments when Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony allied themselves with an overt racist to support women's suffrage over black male suffrage. Um, and certainly the, the 
the parades, the women's suffrage parades at the turn of the century into uh, uh, some of them were segregated. And and Susan B. Anthony justified that on the basis that that once women won the vote, then they would, of course, embrace all women and make it make things better for all women. So it was and okay. Of course, that's what happened, ex- right? I'm sorry. What I said, and of course, that's just what happened, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it's quite staggering when you think about the fact that when women's suffrage um, became the uh, the law. Uh, that the the Women's Party, the most radical of the suffrage uh, movements, was asked, what about black women? And their answer was, black women are equally disfranchised with black men. So that's not a feminist issue. I know. It's it's quite uh, racism is a very ugly thing. And 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 I'm sure many people don't even realize they're being racist when they say things like that. I think that's true. And and then we're beginning to move into that question of how we begin to to struggle against uh, the questions of of what is racism and the ideologies and also our practice on a very personal level of how we do things. And I think that uh, what I would say that's not in the book that I wish now rereading it 50 years later is I wish we had spent at least um, a very small piece of the, um, the conclusion to say that at all times, what we're working towards is a more humane society and a more, a more humane world where everyone is treated with dignity and respect and given the material things they need to live a decent life. And that that has something to do with um, both uh, emotional health, <laughs> perhaps spiritual, if you're a spiritual person, um, a connection to a, a loving spirituality, as well as the necessity of changing the political econ- economy. Um, that was what I was involved in the Southern Freedom Movement. And that was the great gift I got uh, was along with respect for the poor understanding more about poverty and respect for the poor was this idea that because we called it a freedom movement, we didn't call it a civil rights movement. We called it a freedom movement because it was about more than just legal rights. It was about how people treat each other, how we learn to trust and care about each other. And in the subsequent 50 years since this book was written, the I'd say something very positive has come out of some of the emphasis on diversity and respect for diversity. The negative is that the diversity kinds of trainings don't want to deal with racism as such, and certainly not the history of racism. They want to just say, let's all respect each other and we can start from here. And of course, we need to know our history in order to understand where we are. And the history of uh, uh, how politics has changed in, in this country uh, with its Southern strategy, has the Re- Republican Party sought to capitalize on racism since the 1960s? Well, I think the Republican Party has. Certainly, you can see the history of how it was done, but you can even see it in, um, in someone like um, President Bill Clinton, who also played that game to get to win as a Democrat. You know, you go down, you, you know, you, 
you back the idea of law and order and and you go ahead and go to the um, execution of someone in Arkansas who was mentally retarded. You you say things in a way that let the whites know you're not going to really defend black folk. And when he got elected, he demonized black welfare women. Hmm. You know, he he cut the you know, he was not in that sense, a friend of black people, although the Republicans are even worse or worse. But yes, people have, you know, in politics, people cater to white racism to white supremacy. I'm, by the way, big on the fact that one of the values of this book is that it talks about white supremacy, not just racism. The belief, the need to hold on to the belief that somehow if you're white, you're better. That is part of what drives people to then vote for overt racists because they somehow need, especially males because of the patriarch also, they need this idea that there is something special about them being white and male. And this is especially true if they are in parts of the, um, you know, the society that makes money off of racism and off of these divisions. And it comes and it's partly important for people who are at the bottom, who think that they have so little, that at least they have that they're white, at least that they have that they're better than anybody who's not white. That's, that's white supremacy. That's not just um, how you treat somebody else. It comes from that belief, that need to believe uh, that that the white race, what, which you know, we all know there really aren't races as such, but that white people, that Europeans, those that come from the European, European background, that somehow uh, we are better than people who came from Africa or Asia or or the indigenous peoples of the Americas that somehow just intrinsically were better. And that is a real stumbling block to building the kind of unity we need to make a humane society. I need to do a station ID. This is Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. And my guests are Trude Pam Allen and Stephen Hyatt. We're talking about reluctant reformers, racism and social reform movements in the United States, which has just been reissued by OR Books. Um, didn't some... Stephen, didn't some notable African leaders, Booker T. Washington, for example, call for less confrontational approaches to reform? Uh, and and W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington sharply disagreed on strategies for reform. Well, that's right. Um, there have always been leaders in the black community who look at the odds and say, you know, uh, we don't have many allies. We're 10, 12, 13 percent of the population um, it would be nice if working class, poor whites, white farmers would ally with us. But we just saw in the case of Booker T. Washington, he was seen. Um, uh, Tom Watkins in, in Georgia um, selling out black workers and sharecroppers and align his populist uh, party as a whites only organization, having decided under threat from the power structure in Georgia, that you might get something if you pushed a hard racist line, but if you try to unite black and white, um, we'll make sure that we we take you out. And so he he opportunistically decided, okay, I'm 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 for now I'm I'm here on out. I'm going to be a, a straight up you know racist uh, 
demagogue, which he became. Um, so looking at that, Booker T. Washington said, well, it'd be nice if these people would lie, but clearly they won't. And so where do we go um, to try to preserve some access to quarters of power, somebody who will give us something, at uh, least room to grow, develop in some way, slowly, maybe, but something like that. So, well, liberals, uh, foundations, uh, the wealthy, there's a um, Ralph Ellison's uh, Invisible Man has a long section early about a wealthy Boston industrialist who comes to uh, a college in the South, very much like Tuskegee, uh, and is fawned over and the invisible man, he's never named, uh, as a student is to show him around. Um, and there's a whole discussion with the president of that college, very much like Booker T. Washington, on how a black leader needs to handle those benevolent, wealthy white folks and tell them what they want to hear and get from them whatever is available. So there's always that kind of powerful uh, structural problem uh, impinging on uh, the strategies that people pursue. Who's my ally? Who's my friend? Uh, Who's my enemy right now? Uh, And I have to make careful calculations to um, see what's going to work. Now, we may make mistakes in making those calculations, but those are some of the parameters that uh, that are alive and currently, you know, uh, active in, in people's thinking. Now, talking about enemies, uh, haven't uh, many defenders of uh, racist policies claimed that it's the communists who actually want to make changes? Well, within within reluctant reformers, there is a chapter on the socialists and the yeah. communists. So uh, one can also look at their contradictions in terms of this question of how they did and did not, um, you know, maintain solidarity with blacks and people of color. But yes, the accusation of communism was used as a way to try to scare people, certainly in the in the 60s. And uh, it became necessary for people to start to learn how to stand up to those kinds of, of things where someone is saying, oh, he's a communist, therefore he's bad. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was accused of being a communist or, or a communist dupe and stuff. And what people had to um, do, and they always have to do in a social reform movement, is think for themselves. We all have to learn how to think for ourselves. And when people use accusations, whatever they may be, we need to go behind that. We need to figure out why it's being said. And, of course, in the South, communists was used as a way to justify white supremacy and the discrimination and exploitation of the African-American community. That's what the accusation really meant. We don't want change. We want to continue to be able to exploit people. We want to continue to be able to um, exploit even poor whites because they somehow think that since the of white supremacy, they somehow think that's better than joining with blacks and trying to change things. So and communism, yes, was used as a a scare tactic. Now I have without anybody knowing what communism was. I have about one minute left, but <laughs> I want to address the postscript that the book includes. Uh, mm-hmm. What were you hoping to point out there? 
Well, mostly the um, what Robert said was that that people raised the question when the book first came out. But what about the 60s and the, the early 70s? I mean, this was such an important period and it was missing from the book. So that was why the original postscript was written. I had to rewrite the woman suffered sent section because some of the information was not quite correct. But the the real point was that this was such an important period in in um, in the question of social change in this country that we at least, at least needed to do a, a an address it a small amount, which is all we could do. But we did try to address it. And I thank you so much, both of you, for being on our show. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, kind of rethinking our history. My guests have been Chewed Pam Allen and Stephen Hyatt. The book, Reluctant Reformers, Racism and Social Reform Movements in the United States in an updated version just released by O.R. Books. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview. If you'd like to check out more of our one-hour discussions on one subject, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. That's 212-209-2950. We need your help to continue to bring you this unique in-depth content because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. So if you're the kind of listener who tunes in regularly to Landed Lopate at Large or has just discovered our unique content, we need you to step up right now by, as I said, going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to keep this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's completely listener-sponsored on the air with a tax-deductible contribution. And as I'm sure you can understand, we need your help now more than ever after all the difficulties we've faced over the last year. Uh, we hope that you'll consider becoming a sustaining member, a WBAI buddy, uh, $10 a month until you de- or, or more, whatever you think is you're comfortable with. It really helps us to plan for the future. To everyone who's already stepped up to support WBAI in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, we thank you very much. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when sibling language experts and regular contributors to this show, Catherine and Ross Petrus, will discuss the latest language trends. And, and as always, we'll be taking your calls. So we'll see you then.